Psalm 75. We thank you, O God. We give thanks because you are near. People everywhere tell of your wonderful deeds. God says, at the time I have planned, I will bring justice against the wicked. When the earth quakes and its people live in turmoil, I am the one who keeps its foundations firm. I warned the proud, stop your boasting. I told the wicked, don't raise your fists. Don't raise your fists in defiance at the heavens or speak with such arrogance. For no one on earth, from east or west or even from the wilderness, should raise a defiant fist. It is God alone who judges. He decides who will rise and who will fall. For the Lord holds a cup in his hand that is full of foaming wine mixed with spices. He pours out the wine in judgment and all the wicked must drink it, draining it to the dregs. But as for me, I will always proclaim what God has done. I will sing praises to the God of Jacob. For God says, I will break the strength of the wicked, but I will increase the power of the godly. Amen. Our second reading is from Ephesians chapter 3, beginning at verse 14. Paul resumes what he began at the beginning of chapter 3 with a prayer for the Ephesians. For this reason, I kneel before the Father, from whom his whole family in heaven and on earth derives its name. I pray that out of his glorious riches, he may strengthen you with power through his spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. And I pray that you, being rooted and established in love, may have power, together with all the saints, to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ, and to know that this love that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine, according to his power that is at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. Thanks be to God. On the one hand, I have a person or a group of people whose situation is causing serious concern. On the other hand, I have the unlimited resources and power of the true and living God, the creator of the universe. What happens if I join these two things together? What happens if I can plug God into that situation for which I am concerned? Who knows what the outcome might be if a clear connection is established between God and those people or that situation? 
But the act of making that connection is prayer. That's what we're doing. This is a situation desperately need a change. This is God. God, come into that situation and make a difference. From the limitless resources of your glory, would you release your transforming power? Your all-sufficient grace, your steadfast love into the lives of those for whom I pray. At the end of Ephesians chapter 3, Paul prays for the church in Ephesus. His prayer is a model for how I should be praying for you as members of this church. It's also an extra example of how we could and should be praying for each other. And I find it fascinating to look at his prayer. He has this vision of, of the limitless resources of God. He knows who he's praying for and he prays, I pray that out of his glorious riches, he might strengthen you with power. Amen to that. But power for what? Power to do what? Power to be effective witnesses? Power to change the world? Power to live wholeheartedly for Christ 24-7? Power to make a difference? Power to get the job done? All sorts of sermons could come out of that. But actually he says nothing anywhere near so dynamic. May you be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being so that Christ might dwell in your hearts by faith. Really? Is that it? Isn't that a bit of an anticlimax, perhaps? I mean, after all, these people are Christians, aren't they? Paul is praying for the Ephesian church. Surely Christ lives in their hearts already because they are believers. What's he doing praying for this? Praying for something that already is the case of one, is one sure way of getting that prayer answered, I guess. But why is he praying for something that already is the case? Why, if Christ is living in their hearts, and surely Christ is, why does Paul feel the need to pray this prayer, that you would be strengthened with power through his spirit in your innermost being, that Christ might live in your hearts by faith? Perhaps it is to remind them of the sense of wonder, how amazing it is, actually, that Christ should live in our hearts, that our our lives should be the temple of the living God, that the one who fills the whole universe with glory and grace and love and power should make his home in our lives. Perhaps the prayer isn't so much that Christ would get a foothold in through the door, but that they would be aware of just how amazing it is that Christ is in their hearts. Just be aware of who they are in Christ. Conscious is actually that they're not a load of nobodies who don't count and don't matter very much, but Christ lives in them. And that makes the church unique. Whatever other great and worthwhile tasks are performed in the world, the church is unique as the dwelling place of Christ. It sets us apart from everybody else. May you be strengthened with power to realise that that is the case. But maybe as well it's wrapped up with the question about Christ being at home in their hearts. Is Christ present as owner-occupier? Or is he sofa surfing? He's living there, but does he get a kind of space on the sofa? 
because that's the only bit of room that there is for him? Or is he in charge of every aspect of our lives? Does he get into all the rooms at any time? Or does he have restricted access, only certain parts of our lives at certain times of the week? Sunday nights, for example. Is your heart his home? Is that where he belongs? Do you welcome his presence in every area of your life? Does his presence fill your heart? Or is there just a little bit of it that you can say, well, I'm welcome here, but the rest of it actually not allowed in there? May Christ dwell in your hearts by faith. May Christ be completely at home in your hearts by faith. Tom talked this morning very effectively about how deceitful the heart can be and how we need to be led by Christ. May our hearts belong to him 100%. And Paul prays for power again a couple of verses later. In verses 16 to 17, he prays that people might be strengthened with power so that Christ might live in their hearts through faith. In verses 17 to 18, he prays that they might have power together with all the saints to grasp the width and the length and the height and the depth of what precisely? He doesn't actually say that the NIV obligingly fills the gap for his readers by telling us that Paul wants them to know how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ, that love that surpasses all knowledge. But that may not actually be the case. Paul's language isn't clear. In writing about the width and length and height and depth, he could have been looking forward in his mind to what he would say at the end of verse 18, that you might be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. How wide and high and long and deep is the, is the presence of God in your lives that, that knows no limits. May you be filled with the fullness of God, that fullness that fills the entire universe. May the presence of God be vacuum-packed in your lives and opened and released into your heart so the presence of God fills the available space and expands the available space, pours out of us, actually, into those we meet in the surrounding world. If you've ever opened a duvet that's been vacuum-packed, you will know that once you get it out of the packaging... It expands to the point where it's absolutely enormous, big enough to cover a bed, surprisingly enough. And that small package contains something so much bigger than itself. That's how we are, friends. Small, insignificant people or groups of people, but filled with the presence of the living God. And Paul wants us to catch a a glimpse of of how how marvellous that is. The height and the breadth and the length and the depth of the presence of God that can't be contained. May we be filled to overflowing with the transforming presence of the living God who fills all things. Not God tucked away safely in a corner of our lives. But God filling and transforming every part of our being. And how does that happen precisely? It doesn't happen automatically, otherwise Paul wouldn't have, had, wouldn't have needed to pray for such a thing. And clearly, we can't engineer it ourselves. We can't fill ourselves with the presence of God. God needs to do it. It has to be God's task to fill people. That's why Paul prays for it to happen. Yet maybe we do have a role to play as well. 
As Ben Witherington observes in his commentary on Ephesians, sanctification and a growing relationship with and the presence of Christ in the believer's life is contingent upon the believer exercising faith in Christ. It's not a unilateral act or activity of God. So if we want to be filled with the presence of God, we need to exercise faith. We need to be prepared to make room for him. We need to allow the capacity of our hearts to expand, to admit and contain more of his presence. We need not just to have faith, but to exercise it. To put it into practice, to realise the greatness of the God we belong to and the greatness of the God we worship. And to allow that to change us. It's possible to have Christ in our lives and keep him in a very small corner. It's possible to have faith in Christ without exercising it. You can have faith without exercising it, just like you can be a fully paid up member of a gym without ever doing any exercise or training at all. In fact, your average gym relies financially on people who pay but never turn up. They subsidise everybody else's fitness regime. But it doesn't work that way in the kingdom. If your faith lies dormant and unused, that means everybody else is carrying you to some extent. The power, the knowledge of the presence of God, the being changed and transformed from the inside out, that comes through exercising faith, flexing those spiritual muscles and beginning to put our faith into practice. That's how we grow as Christians. And Paul clearly expects the Christians in Ephesus will be growing in their faith. As he talks about them being rooted and established in love. Plants need roots. Plants have roots. Though I'm no gardener, even I know that much. Roots draw up the essential water and vital minerals from the soil and enable the plant to grow. So if you are rooted in love, you will grow in faith. Love is the spiritual compost that helps develop strong and vibrant Christian lives. And Paul talks about being rooted. He also talks about being grounded. But the word grounded is a building metaphor. It refers to foundations. We could translate it as being established on a firm foundation of love. But you don't live in foundations. The purpose of digging foundations is that something can be built on top of them. So again, Paul is using a metaphor here that conjures up the idea of growth and development being built together into a dwelling place for God. Once you have become a Christian, that is not the end of the story. Far from it. Becoming a Christian is not a static thing at all. It's not as if once you've signed on the dotted line, you can forget all about it because you now have your eternal life insurance policy. No, that is not how being a Christian works. That is not what it is all about. Becoming a Christian marks the start of a living, vibrant, dynamic relationship with God. It means that you are constantly changing. You are constantly growing. You are constantly developing as time goes by. As you are rooted in love, as you are built on the firm foundation of love, so you grow. And you need to grow because the presence of Christ within you keeps wanting to expand and fill the space that's there. You will know that one of the five areas that were committed to at Brighton Road is is spiritual growth and development. And at a recent, recent meeting to consider this, we looked at six critical factors 
for spiritual growth that have been developed by someone called Luke Simmons. And I wanted to reflect with, with you for a few minutes on what those six factors are that enable us to grow. Number one is personal spiritual practices. And by this, Luke means something like prayer, Bible study, serving, giving, stuff like that, all the usual suspects. But it struck me that the discipline of personal spiritual practices is something that we can be in danger of losing. Yes, we all know we should be doing these things, but it's hard to get around to them and we can get away without doing them and it's a bit of an effort sometimes and, you know, we're we're under grace, not law, aren't we? Do we really need to do this kind of thing every single day? But it means we don't grow if we don't do the basic things like this. They are important. They do matter. They do make a difference. I was fascinated back at Easter to read an account by the the nominal Catholic broadcaster Adrian Chiddies. Well, I say he's nominal. He might not be nominal. But clearly he doesn't attend church very often because he took it upon himself the task of attending Mass in a different church every single day during Lent. Took a bit of doing. He thought it would be a real struggle, a kind of penance, if you like, going to church every single day for 46 days. And it wasn't easy. But he said that in practice he found it to be a rich and enriching experience. And he was able to describe this Lent as the most rewarding and quietly intense 46 days of his life. He was taken by surprise at the difference it made difference it made, going to church every single day. That bit of spiritual discipline and encountering spiritual realities in a new way that he hadn't really done so before. Well, there's something worth bearing in mind there. If you mean business enough with God to get down to some disciplined spiritual practices, who knows what new thing God might do in your life. Put yourself out a bit for God and see what happens. Because while while it is all grace and God desires to fill our lives and fill us with his presence and with his power and with his love, in actual fact that is facilitated if we apply ourselves a bit and have a little bit of discipline about it. So number one, key to growth is personal spiritual practices. Number two, meaningful spiritual relationships. That's why we come to church. That's why we turn out on a Sunday. That's why trying to live a solo Christian life is not what it's about. You connect with God, God plugs you into his church. Not because he wants to spoil your week by making you give up a couple of hours of your precious weekend. But because in church, you find people, actually friends, who will be there for you. To encourage you. To challenge you. To support you. Sometimes even gently to make you aware of your weaknesses and shortcomings and to accept you and to encourage you to change. The Christian life was always meant to be a life lived together. It is much harder to grow in your relationship with God if you try going it alone. Number three is is taking risks in life or ministry. Challenges stretch our faith and make us rely on God. Rowan Williams has written a recent book entitled Being Christian. And in it, I think he says that prayer is not about believing that somehow our most pious thoughts reach God. We pray because we have to. It's like sneezing. 
We come to a point where we can't not do it because we have such an acute sense of needing God's help. And that comes to us if we find ourselves or place ourselves in situations of risk. But we can't simply coast on our own resources. But being obedient to God moves us out of our comfort zone into a situation where we think, actually, I can't do this without a bit of help somewhere along the line. That sense of needing to rely on the grace of God comes about as we start to take risks and push the boat out a little bit. If we give space to the voice of God and he calls us into something we don't feel well equipped to undertake, then we will pray. It is our natural, instinctive response to rely on him and seek his presence and ask for his help. As Luke Simmons wryly observes, we don't grow through comfort and convenience. We grow through risk. And if God pushes us out a little bit, not because he wants to distance us from him, but he wants us to rely more on him in prayer. Number four is relevant equipping and teaching. When you're listening to this sermon, I guess that's a good start. Number five Moments of crisis. Crisis makes us reach out for God. Sometimes we can feel so helpless we could do nothing more than abandon ourselves into his hands. It can feel as if you're drowning sometimes, but when God brings you back up to the surface again, after maybe a longer period of time than you would have thought it possible to survive, you find actually he's still your saviour. He has rescued you. He is faithful. His steadfast love is there. Such an experience cannot leave our faith unchanged. It might be different. Some things we might have let go of. We might see things differently and believe in God in a slightly different way. But that moment of crisis actually enables our faith to grow and develop and change. I was hugely encouraged last Sunday with the the question session that the young people introduced to the cafe service. Questions about the world and faith and the Bible and prayer. It's through asking such questions that our faith grows and adapts and changes and evolves and matures as we ourselves progress through life. Number six. Number six is a continual rediscovery of the gospel. And I want to say amen to this because it is the gospel that changes us. It is the foundation we can never let go of. The gospel is good news. What we are about here is the good news of love and grace and life and forgiveness that are freely given to us through Jesus Christ. It has to be all about Jesus and what he has done for us and what he means to us before, over and above what we ought to be doing for him. I was talking to a fellow minister the other day and we were talking about the paradox. He said, I went on retreat, he said, and came away and really thought, I, I just need to realise that I am a child in the presence of God and, and who I am is far more important than what I do. And I came back to church and thought, how can I get all these people working, was his thought. It starts actually with all of us knowing that we are God's children. Starts by being good news. If the focus is all upon what we should be doing, upping our giving, improving our living, increasing our serving, that turns the gospel into bad news. It just exhausts people. It is good news. It's about who Jesus is and what Jesus has done for us. The pub group on Tuesday, we're thinking about church. That's our discussion. One of the passages we're thinking about, it comes from Life is Commitment by a guy called J.H. Alderman. He says this, the church is necessary because Christianity is essentially the proclamation not of a demand, but a fulfillment. 
It's not the insistence on love as an ideal to be striven after, but the joyful news that God is love. And that we know this because his love has been manifested in history. Grace and truth came by Jesus Christ. The church is the witness to that revelation and the continuing embodiment of that new life. So I'm drawn back again to Paul's prayer for the church. What's he pray for? That Christ might dwell in your hearts by faith. That's the gospel. That's where it starts. That's what we always need to keep focused on and never forget. Paul prays that they would have power. Not power to live better lives. Not power to make an impact on the world. Not power to be liberated into life-changing acts of sacrificial generosity. It's power simply to know the basic and the most important thing. That Christ lives in your heart by faith. And to know the full extent of what that means, the width and the length and the height and the depth, the fullness of the loving God in your soul. Discipleship, spiritual growth, progress, all need to flow out of a relationship with Jesus. Worship, then, is vital, actually. Because if you love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind and strength, you will do anything for him. There's nothing you won't do for Jesus if you love him that much. And we love him because he loved us first and gave his son to be our saviour. What you worship is what you live for. And we worship a God who's made himself known to us. Who saved us by the gift of his son. Who's given Jesus to us and for us. The gospel is good news. We worship Jesus who forgives our past, fills us with his spirit and redeems our lives for the future. Without him, we are without hope and without God in the world. But with him, we have the transforming presence of God in our hearts. The inexhaustible and limitless riches of his grace and love and power to draw on. Make that connection. Let God fill your life. Andrew Lincoln, another commentator on this passage, summarises this message in these words. As believers are strengthened through the Spirit in the inner person. As they allow Christ to dwell in their hearts through faith. And as they know more of the love of Christ. So the process of being filled up to all the fullness of the life and the power of God will take place. Leave those words up there for a moment or two. Read them. Reflect on them. And ask that they would be true in your life.
Lord, would you strengthen me with power through your spirit in my inner person. Lord, I invite Christ to dwell in my heart through faith. Lord Jesus, enable me to know more of your love. And would you fill me with the fullness of your life and your power. Your love and your presence. Amen.